Amen. Well, welcome. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 16. Uh, as the offering's being taken, let's, uh, let's just start with a little bit of lament. Uh, lament, historically, it happens in the Psalms where God's people gather together and name what is wrong and broken in the world. So uh, I'm sick and tired of being sick and hearing about sick people. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Who has had the flu or some version of it? Raise your hand. I mean, the majority of us, we should have done that pre-shaking of hands, I apologize, but, um, and then I am sick of walking out into my car on mornings that are this cold, and uh, can I get a couple amens on that one too? Okay, feel better, we're together in this. We are in a year-long series that started in September, we'll go all the way through August. Uh, We're using this tool called the Wayfinding Bible, and uh, we're trying to get a big picture understanding of what God's amazing redemptive story is all about. We've been in the Old Testament for a long time, and we're going to be in the Old Testament for a good while longer. And uh, it's actually post-Easter that we jump in in the New Testament, and uh, our friend Steve Weens will be coming in to preach the very first time we're in the New Testament. So I told him he he was a a lucky guy. Uh, Judges 16. Samson and Delilah. By the way, if you have kids, we're going to keep this on a PG level. I know this, uh, this story could go a lot of different ways. But Samson and Delilah is one of those stories in the Old Testament that is really challenging. The book of Judges is a super dark book. It's broken. It's flawed. It's messed up. Uh, I was thinking last week we had Teen Challenge here. And uh, if you weren't here, Teen Challenge is an amazing organization that helps people through Christ pursue sobriety. And uh, one of the things they do is they come, they sing songs, they let us in worship, and then they just sort of share testimonies. And the guy leading it will call a person out, and it seems almost random, like, hey, you, come and share your testimony. And they come up and they share uh, often deep places of brokenness that led to the, these type of addictions. And it got me thinking, what if the church functioned that way? What what if this morning I just started calling people up and said, come up and just get really honest with us. Like like share the stuff that's really deep and dark and the shadows and the secrets and the addictions and the pain. Um, What would probably happen if you're anything like me, you would be running for the doors, amen? Like that's not what we're supposed to do here. Um, And in some level that's that's true, that's not fair. but, But what if... We got really honest about how our hearts and lives actually looked. What if we got really honest? What if we talked about our flaws and our brokenness and our shame, our anger, our pride, our secrets? What if we talked about our addictions and not just alcohol or drugs? Like, What what if we opened up and, and did that and said, at the end of the day, most of us are probably far worse than we are care we care to admit? And I think what the book of Judges Judges does, it invites us into that type of place. Let me give you a little bit of background. We just have one week in Judges. Let me give you a little bit of background to the book of Judges. Judges traces the time in the Old Testament from Joshua to when the kings start. So in the book of Judges, we have this collection of judges. And they're not judicial judges wearing a robe sitting in a courtroom. Judges in the Old Testament, they're military leaders, they're clan chieftains. Their job is to deliver, often through war, which involved death, God's people from captivity or oppression by a foreign nation. As we're reading Judges, think more Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit than modern day realities. I don't think there were orcs or dwarfs, but... It's a little bit more that type of world. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of war. It doesn't make sense to us, but it's huge. So, 
Again, this book, as, as the whole of the Bible, it's about God's relationship to his people. In the Old Testament, it's Israel. And it's this loving Heavenly Father who's not going to go back on his promise. He promised Abraham, you're mine. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. But now it's this ongoing, at times, seemingly conditional relationship with very broken people. Very flawed people. And the question and challenge is often, how does this loving God deal with people who are ongoing, in an ongoing way, sinning against him, rebelling against him? And the way it looks, in the book of Judges, this is sort of this cycle. it happens again and again and again. And here's what it looks like. God's people, the children of Israel, do evil in God's sight. The next thing that happens is God in his righteous anger, anger is anger at it. And what often happens as a result of that anger is oppression. The God's people then are oppressed by a foreign nation. During the oppression, God's people finally realize this isn't a good thing. They cry out to God. God hears the cry, brings in a deliverer, which in this case, in the book of Judges, is one of the judges. And then after that, we often have this place where they are living as God's people for a period of time, and then it happens again, and again, and again, and again. And it's interesting to me, as you look at Judges, and I think the way it speaks so clearly to us is that looking at the book of Judges, that most of the Judges... Most of these judges are deeply flawed people delivering deeply flawed people. By the way, if you're new to the church, that's sort of what the church is. Deeply flawed people coming together, trying to pursue grace, right? Amen? That's who we are. And that's the story in the book of Judges, is really messed up people delivering really messed up people. So let's read down through Judges chapter 16. It says this, One day Samson went to the Philistine town of Gaza and spent the night there. The Philistines are the main enemy at this time of God's people. There's five major cities that the Philistines had. Each one has a ruler. Gaza is one of those cities. Verse 2, word soon spread that Samson was there. So the men of Gaza gathered together and waited all night at the town gates. They kept quiet during the night, saying to themselves, when the light of morning comes, we will kill him. Samson, Philistines, we, most of you, if you grew up in the church on any level, you know that that is the whole point of chapter 16. They hate him, he hates them. Verse 3, but Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors, uh, doors of the town gate. And by the way, they're probably 6 to 12 feet wide, so has a pretty good reach, reaches across, takes a hold of these gates, including the two posts, lifted them up, and remember, think sort of more Hobbit, Lord of the Rings here, lifts them up, bar and all, puts them on his shoulders, carries them all the way to the top of the hill across from Hebron. Hebron is 40 miles away from, from Gaza. I mean, talk about a good midnight workout, right? Working out the carbs from the night before. This, this, is, this guy is strong. Verse 4. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah. Delilah is a prostitute. She lives in the Valley of Sorek. Now we've moved to a different place. The Valley of Sorek is about 13 miles outside of Jerusalem. So the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, and by the way, this means the five sort of kings of each one of these cities, they go to her and they say, enticing Samson to tell you what makes him strong, and how he can be overpowered, tie him up securely. That's, that's what she's supposed to do. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Just to give you a little idea, 1,100 times 5 is 5,500, right? Okay, can I get a math person to say yes, pastor, that's right. 
I'm, I'm not a math guy. And so 5,500 pieces of silver, by the way, if we did the math into our day, would be about $15 million. So the temptation's pretty big, right? Like here's $15 million, here's the job to do. You get it done and we will actually give you this money, set for life and beyond. And here comes the fun interaction between Samson and Delilah. We don't have time to go into this her tempting her, him lying back and forth, but here's how the narrative goes. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me what makes you strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. Samson replied, if I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not yet been dried, I would become as weak as anyone else. So the Philistine rulers brought Delilah seven new bowstrings. She tied Samson up with them. She had hidden some men in one of the inner rooms of her house, and she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson snapped the bowstrings as a piece of string snaps when it is burned by a fire. So the secrets of his strength was not discovered. And it keeps going afterward. Delilah said to him, you've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now please tell me how you can be tied up securely. By the way, there is so much, the back and forth between the two of them, apparently he's a really deep sleeper. Because you can do everything to this guy in the middle. Tie him up, cut his hair, tie his hair. It's, it's, it's intriguing how, how funny this story is at times. Samson replied, If I were tied up with brand new ropes that had never been used, I would become as weak as anybody else. So Delilah took new ropes and tied, them, tied him up with them. The men were hiding in the inner room as before. And again, Delilah cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But again, Samson snapped the ropes from his arms as if they were a thread. Then Delilah said, you have been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now tell me how you can be tied up securely. Samson said, if you were to weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric and your loom and tighten it up with the loom shuttle, I would become as weak as anybody else. And what you can imagine, by the way, the, the, the image of this is he's laying down and the looms would be wood posts in the ground that his hair then would be tied into. Remember, he has really long hair. And so that's happening once again while he's deep in sleep, apparently. And so it says, so while he slept, hair tied up, Delilah wove the seven braids of his hair into the fabric. Then she tightened it with the loom shuttle. Again, he, she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson woke up, pulled back the shuttle, literally just pulls it up, yanks his hair away from the loom and the fabric. Then Delilah pouted. <laughs> Such a great, this, this interaction here, we don't have time to deal with. She pouts and says, how can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you strong. She tormented him with her nagging day in and day out until he was sick to death of it. Let's just leave that be. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Finally, Samson shared his secret with her. My hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite. That's one of the Jewish sort of sects. That's why his hair had not been uh, cut. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me. And I would become weak as anyone else. Delilah realized he had finally told her the truth. So she sent the Philistine rulers, come back one more time, she said. For he's finally told me the secret. The Philistine rulers returned with money in their hands. Hands are $15 million. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head on her lap. And then she called in the men to shave off seven locks of his hair. And this way she began to bring him down. And his strength left him. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him, gouged out his eyes. That was common practice when enemies were taken, one of the things that would happen. Took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains, forced to grind grain in the prison. 
That's the lowest job possible. The lowest servant, the worst of prisoners were given that. Samson is at the bottom of all of it. But before long, his hair began to grow. Philistine rulers held a great festival, offering sacrifices and praising their god Dagon. He's one of their main deities. They said, our God has given us victory over our enemy Samson. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. Half drunk by now, the people demanded, bring out Samson so he can amuse us. So he was brought from the prison to amuse them, and they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. Samson said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, place my hand against the pillars that hold up the temple. I want to rest against them. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there. And there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were watching as Samson amused them. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With, with one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple, pushing against them with both hands. He prayed, let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than during his entire lifetime. Later, his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body. They took him back home and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol, where his father Manoah was buried. Samson had judged, judged Israel for 20 years. So it's back a little bit to our question of what do we benefit from a book like this? What do we benefit from reading a story like this? And I think it's the same thing we tend to hear time and time again. It's that we learn about the great love of God even for really broken people who don't deserve that love and don't appreciate it. And you think about this throughout the whole book of Judges. Look at the collection of people that are leading, the flawed leaders in this. A reluctant farmer. A prophetess, Deborah, one of the, the female leaders. A left-handed assassin. Left-handed, very derogatory terms back, back then. Any left-handers, we're not meaning to say anything to you in here. An illegitimate child who was a bandit becomes a judge. A sex-addicted Nazarite, Samson. And it's easy for us, I think, when we read these stories, when we look at these stories, to point out the faults and failures in the people that are in here, especially the judges. But I think Paul reminds us well in 1 Corinthians 6, that is what some of you were. I think if we're really honest when we read the book of Judges, when we look at Israel, when we look at its leaders, that it reminds us that we are actually worse than we think we are, or worse than we care to admit out loud. And that God's grace and God's love is there again and again and again and again in all of these stories. When it seems at its most dark that God is there in the midst of people who are completely broken and flawed. Samson, at the end of the day, I think he represents both the best and the worst in each of us. Think about this. He's called by the grace of God, bound to God by promise, repeatedly empowered, greatly gifted, yet faithless, self-indulgent, easily, easily taken in by his addictions. And I think about that. I think about this story, and I think about the fact that we are more flawed, I'm more broken, I'm more messed up than I care to admit. And I started thinking about New Year's resolutions, right? It makes a lot of sense. Judges to New Year's resolutions. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. 
a few of you. But the majority of us have probably thought about it's a new year, right? It's a new chance. It's a new start at something. And I think New Year's resolutions do a couple of things in us. Our desire to make New Year's resolutions tells me that there's something in me that is messed up. I want to be better. I want to deal with that thing. I want to admit that struggle. I want to deal with that secret, that addiction, that whatever it might be. New Year's resolutions name that there's something in me that is deeply flawed. But it also names the reality that I think, I think maybe I could change. I think maybe I could do better, be something different. And the majority of us in the journey of New Year's resolutions, we, we two months, six weeks, three months, we stop, Right? As we do it on our own power, on our own ability. And it's intriguing. I, I have a few friends that instead of making New Year's resolutions, they actually do one word to live by in the year to come. So they choose a word and they really try and frame their life and who they are by this one word. And if you had to look at the book of Judges in this story, what word would you choose? What word would you choose? Messed up, flawed, broken, God's grace. It's intriguing. In the New Testament, when this story is referred to, it's all about faith. That this story somehow, and then the leaders, these flawed leaders, it's about faith. That somehow for all their flaws, we learn faith from these judges. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is where this story is referred to in the New Testament. In the start of this chapter, in, in chapter 11, it says this in verses 1 and 2. Faith is the confidence that we hope, what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot three, see through their faith. The people in days of old earned a good reputation. Then we go on to this list of men and women, Old Testament men and women, who it was by their faith that God worked through them. Look down to verse 32. How much more do I need to say? So list after list. People who is by their faith. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised to them. Somehow, through this deeply flawed, messed up, broken individual, the word we're invited into is faith. This idea of trust and confidence in who God is. And what does that look like? Look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews. This is so, these four verses are so, so good. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to that life of faith. Read chapter 11. The idea is, I've told you about it. These people did what they did in the narrative of God's story, not because they were awesome, not because they were strong, but because they trusted God. They had confidence in God. Because of that, because I've told you those stories, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. 
And so the life of walking towards faith, of trusting in God, the step towards that is turning away from all the other things that we tend to trust in. And I think that's so important. I think it's so important that as we choose to trust, as we choose to have confidence in God, I need to name the things that I have confidence in that don't fulfill, that don't give life. Whether it's sin, shame, brokenness, pride, arrogance, anything that I trust in other than Jesus Christ is what the author is talking about here. Cast it off. Heading into 2015, cast it, whatever it is. Whatever keeps you from putting full faith, full confidence in who God revealed in Jesus Christ is, cast it off is what the author says. And he says, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And here it is. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. It is Jesus who saves. It is Jesus who works in our life after we put our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus all the time, friends. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. 2015, I invite you into a life of full faith in Jesus Christ. Is the most important thing you'll do. More important than any raise. More important than your, teen, your kids making a sports team. The most important thing, your eyes fixed with full confidence on who Jesus Christ is.